0: Disclaimer. You may notice that around the 10-minute mark, the quality of my voice somewhat deteriorates. This is as a result of a nasty cold which made itself known before I had finished recording. So instead of going back and re-recording the whole thing with a head full of cold, I decided to continue bravely and save myself some time. But if you're wondering why my voice goes mad about halfway through this, that's why. Thank you. Enjoy. Greetings all and welcome back to the Untold History podcast. I'm going to give you something a little different this time. So hold on to your hats. Those of you with a keen grasp of arithmetic may have listened to episode one and been keenly anticipating what would follow, naturally in the form of an episode two. But those people would be wrong. What I'm actually providing is a first bonus episode, where we delve outside of the main chronological narrative to go into detail on some of the subjects that will provide important context to our story of the reign of King Edward VI. The subject of the first such episode is the Seymour family. Who were they, where did they come from, and why did they now seem to be in charge? In the early years of the reign of the third Tudor monarch, King Edward VI, real power resided not with the Tudors, but with the Seymours, largely in the form of Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset and Lord Protector of the Realm. The Seymours' extraordinary rise in the reign of King Henry VIII mirrored that of the Boleyn family when Henry took Anne as his wife. But unlike the Boleyns, the Seymours found themselves retaining power after the death of Jane, while the Boleyns' favour dropped like a rather large and heavy stone after that of Anne. This is no surprise, considering the circumstances of the ends of Henry's second and third wives' time as Queen's. Jane died a natural death in childbirth, while Anne was executed on the order of the king on adultery charges. Jane's reputation was untarnished. Her marriage to the king had not passed long beyond the honeymoon period, and her death occurred in the act of delivering the realm a healthy male heir in the form of Prince Edward. And, unlike with Anne, Henry's marriage to Jane was not tainted by the circumstances of his divorce from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, who had died in 1536 during Anne's short reign. At the time of his third marriage, the king was truly a free man, a man free to marry. Despite Jane's sad demise, with a long-for-prince to succeed him, King Henry would, for the rest of his life, remain grateful to the Seymours. They were to be favoured until the end of the reign, but how had they found themselves in a position of prominence in the first place? How did Jane even come to his attention as potential wife material? With this bonus episode I intend to explore the family's rise, which began in earnest in the reign of Henry VII, the first of the Tudor monarchs. The Seymour name arrived in England with the Normans at the time of conquest, of course 1066, the most famous of all historical dates. The family specifically came from Saint-Maur, close to Paris, and the Tudor Seymours, as their name became, would trace their ancestry back to an individual named Wido de Saint Moor. Wido and his early descendants gained lands in Wiltshire, Gloucestershire, and Somerset, and the family rose slowly but steadily in wealth and status over the next three centuries. In 1363, Roger Saint Moor married the rich heiress Cecilia. Daughter of Lord John Beauchamp of Hash of Somerset, substantially increasing the St. Mauds wealth and property, another advantageous marriage followed two generations later with the marriage of Roger's grandson to Maud Estermy, daughter of Sir William Estermy, Speaker of the House of Commons in the reign of Henry the Fourth, as Sir William lacked a male heir, his residence of Wolfhall or Wolf Hall passed to Roger and Maud's son John. He went on to achieve great status in Wiltshire, serving as sheriff for a time. Three more generations and 1474 or thereabouts saw the birth of John Seymour, whose life finally brings us into the Tudor age. His father, yet another John, a name apparently greatly popular with the Seymours, died in 1491, six years into the reign of Henry VII, leaving John, that would be Edward, Thomas and Jane's father, head of the family and lord of Wolf Hall. He had, however, not quite reached the age of majority, meaning he was to become the ward of Sir Henry Wentworth, which essentially meant that Wentworth was the boy's legal guardian and that John would live under his roof on his Suffolk estates. Here, John would meet and later marry Wentworth's daughter Marjorie, a famous beauty of the time who was some four years John's junior. Interestingly, the day of the wedding was a double marriage for Wentworth remarried at the same time as his daughter tied the knot with John Seymour, following the death of his first wife and Marjorie's mother, Anne Say. Between their marriage in 1519, John and Marjorie would have ten children together, some of whom, as we already know, were destined to become key figures in the reigns of Henry VIII and Edward VI. Keeping the family naming tradition going, the first of these was, you guessed it, John. He was followed by Edward in 1500, Henry in 1503, and then Thomas in 1508. Jane, later to be Queen, arrived in 1509. The eldest child, John, was said to have been overshadowed by his next eldest brother Edward, perhaps largely on account of the fact that not much is known of his life, and he died of unknown causes any time between 1510 and 1520, before his family rose to prominence. Henry also lived a far quieter and longer life than Edward or Thomas, surviving well into the reign of Elizabeth I. As noted in episode one, Elizabeth, the second youngest sibling, would later marry Thomas Cromwell's son Gregory after the death of her first husband. All in all, six boys and four girls were born to this generation's Seymours, and eight survived infancy. The elder John Seymour would earn a knighthood fighting for King Henry VII at Blackheath against the Cornish Rebellion of 1497, which emerged in response to crippling taxations by the king that hit the southwest particularly hard. Some 15,000 men marched from Cornwall into Devon, collecting extra men along the way, and for a time the rebellion seemed a plausible threat to the king and the new Tudor reign. The six-year-old Prince Henry and his mother, Elizabeth of York, were moved to the Tower of London for their safety. By the time the rebel army reached London, however, the tide had turned against them. Henry VII's armies had quickly been diverted from the north, where they were engaging the Scots, and a force of 25,000 men loyal to the crown descended on London. Many of the rebels lost their nerve, or had not wished to openly fight the king in the first place, and up to a third of the men deserted before the armies engaged one another. Massively outnumbered, the Cornish and their allies were quickly routed, and their leaders executed with traitor's deaths. The triumphant king then toured the battlefield, knighting men who had fought particularly valiantly, John Seymour, of course, included. In the years that followed, Sir John would, like his grandfather, serve as Sheriff of Wiltshire for the second term in 1507-08, to The following year would see the death of Henry VII and the succession of his son as Henry VIII. Seymour was present at the king's funeral. He would serve the new king in combat against the French on several occasions in the next decade, as well as a third term as sheriff. His status was such that he accompanied the royal party to the famous peace summit of the Field of Cloth of Gold between Henry and King Francis of France in 1520. In around 1526, Sir John's eldest surviving son Edward married the young and wealthy heiress, Catherine Philol. They had two sons together, but the marriage was to be a short one. Rumour persisted that Catherine engaged in an affair during one of Edward's absences from the family home. Some believe that this indiscretion may even have been with her own father-in-law, Sir John himself. This is ultimately a juicy but doubtful rumour, and comes from a single 17th-century source that is itself open to interpretation. Whatever the truth of the matter, Edward did not believe himself the father of at least the pair's eldest child, John, evident in his exclusion from Edward's will. The exact circumstances can never be verified, but the marriage was ended and Catherine was sent to a convent. In addition, she was excluded from her own father's will, though received a pension of £40 a year in exchange for her compliance with being sent away. She was dead by 1535, and Edward was free to remarry, this time to Anne Stanhope, the daughter of another knight, who was some ten years his junior. This second marriage was a success, and bore Edward another ten children. Checking in with the king, he was by this time divorced from Catherine of Aragon and married to Anne Boleyn, who gave birth to Princess Elizabeth in 1533. Two years later saw a crucial moment in the rise of the Seymour family, as the king visited their home of Wolf Hall during his summer progress of 1535. These annual progresses were a tour of the kingdom by the king and his retinue, designed to give the people a glimpse of their monarch and promote connection and loyalty. The royal entourage would lodge with prominent noblemen and in religious houses along the way. It was a great, if costly, honour for a family to host the king on his travels, but it certainly paid off for the Seymours. By this time, the royal marriage was in trouble, and although Anne accompanied Henry for the duration, her miscarriage of the previous year had soured her fervour in his affections. She would be dead some nine months later. For now, though, the guests arrived at Wolf Hall on the 3rd of September, where they were to be hosted by Sir John and his family for perhaps four or five days. Wolf Hall was located on the edge of Wiltshire's Savernake Forest and had good hunting prospects, so we can assume that plenty of this took place during their stay, for the men at least. In truth, little is known of the events that took place there in 1535, but Jane Seymour was certainly present, We do not know if this was the first time the King had laid eyes upon his future wife. In fact, almost certainly not, for as one of the Queen's ladies she already travelled with the Royal Party as part of the Progress before joining her family at Wolf Hall. However, he would have had a greater chance to interact with her, and maybe the seeds of attraction were sown at this time. We cannot know for sure, but certainly the 27-year-old Jane was a very different character to his current wife being by all accounts demure and gentle, even on her home ground. But, in the home of her father, she would have received more attention than usual, and had more chance to shine. By the end of the year, it was known that Jane was rising in the King's affections, and spending more time in his company, chaperoned by her elder brother Edward, as was appropriate for an unmarried lady of the time. As Jane rose, so too did members of her family. Edward was appointed a gentleman of the King's Privy Chamber in March 1536, granting him the closest possible access to the King in his own private living spaces. However, important events prior to that had already set the tone for the rest of the year. Early 1536 saw Henry VIII's famous jousting accident, one that could have ended his life were he not such a strong man. The 44-year-old King sustained a head injury during a tournament at Greenwich that left him unconscious for two hours after being thrown from his horse, which then landed on top of him. Panic ensued as many present at first thought the King dead, but he was ultimately to survive. However, the injuries sustained would plague him both mentally and physically for the rest of his life. Five days later, Anne Boleyn miscarried of a son about four months into pregnancy citing her shock over the king's accident as the reason. From this moment forth, the queen and her already troubled marriage were doomed. Henry told his wife that he did not believe they would ever have male children together and resolved to be rid of her. What's more, he already had a replacement lined up in the form of Jane. Much has been written about Anne's fall and as this is a podcast focusing on the reign of Edward VI, I will not try to add to that body of work. The well-trodden ground of that particular story ends, as we know, in the grounds of the Tower of London, with a single stroke of the executioner's sword on Friday the 19th of May, 1536. Jane Seymour had been sent home to Wolf Hall while a case against Anne was formulated, yet it is said that she was later moved to Bellington Park in Surrey so that the King could visit her in secret. It is clear that by this time Henry had resolved to make her his third wife, and plans were clearly in place for a speedy marriage, as the pair were formally betrothed the day after Anne's execution. Marriage followed a mere ten days later. The Seymour's rise to prominence was now complete. Sir John had lived to see his daughter become Queen of England, and must have died a happy man at the end of 1536, in the knowledge that his legacy was secure, and his family enjoyed status at the end of his life, undreamt of at the beginning. His eldest son Edward, the Queen's brother, who had been made Viscount Beauchamp on the 5th of June 1536, was now the head of the family, inheriting Wolf Hall and his father's titles. Edward's brother Thomas, meanwhile, was 28 years old when his sister became Queen. Little is known of his early life, He was ultimately a person of no great note before he became part of the extended royal family as the king's brother-in-law. He gained a knighthood in October of 1537, around the time of the birth of Prince Edward. The following year, he received gifts of land in Essex, Hampshire, and Berkshire, and was sent as an ambassador to the French courts, and in 1539 was part of the party that met Anne of Cleves in Calais before she was brought to England in advance of her short marriage to the king Later assignments saw him sent to the Hungarian court. On his return, back in England, he would later become a love rival to King Henry, not a battle he was ever likely to win. The woman that was the subject of both men's affections was Catherine Parr, who was currently a member of the Princess Mary's household. Thomas Seymour was known as an attractive, charismatic man, though he remained unmarried even into his thirties, unusual for the time. Yet it seems he was willing to make a modest man of himself for Catherine, who in 1543 became a widow for the second time, on the death of John Neville, Lord Latimer, her husband. A total fifteen years of marriage for Catherine had not seen the birth of any children, so it was something of a surprise for the heir obsessed King Henry to take an interest in making her his sixth wife after the fall of Catherine Howard. Perhaps the seemingly robust health of Prince Edward had softened his feelings in that regard. While Seymour and Catherine had begun a courtship, it is said that she saw it as her duty to marry the king, and so naturally Seymour was obliged to give way to his monarch. He was wise to do so, and accepted a posting away from court as an ambassador in the Netherlands. After Henry's death, he would renew his interest in Catherine, and indeed other members of the late king's family but those are stories for later episodes. If that isn't an incentive to keep listening, I don't know what is. Catherine married Henry VIII on the 12th of July 1543, in a ceremony conducted by Stephen Gardner, Bishop of Winchester. It was to be a successful coupling compared to several of the royal marriages of the reign, and indeed the second longest of the six, lasting some three and a half years until Henry's death. Though the marriage did not produce any additional princes or princesses, the intelligent, measured Catherine and the aging King Henry were a decent match, and Catherine's reign was mercifully free of the scandal that had engulfed the previous one of her namesake. She also formed a strong bond with her stepson the prince, taking a keen interest in the boy's education. Thomas Seymour spent the rest of the reign gaining military titles and experience. He was made Marshal of the English Armies in the Netherlands in 1543 and Lord High Admiral in 1544. He was then made Lord Warden of the Sank Ports in 1545, a position relating to the naval defences, stemming from five key ports on the southeast coast of England. We will see what Thomas makes of his newfound power and how he copes with his brother's newfound kingly power as Lord Protector in podcasts to come. So there we have it. A bit of context on the Seymours and their story, bringing us up to date to 1547 and the dawn of the new Reign. I hope you enjoyed it. Please look out for episode two, which is hopefully be coming hot on the heels of this bonus one. If you enjoyed it, please leave a like and comment if you wish, and give the podcast a follow so you don't miss anything new. Follow us on Twitter at Untold Histopod, and head to wattpad.com user slash Joel A. Levy for the transcripts and key sources. Keep well and talk to you soon.